All right, this summer, we're going to spend nine weeks going through the book of Philippians. We have a, a series graphic. Summer of joy, okay? This book of Philippians uh, is a letter all about joy. You're going to see why as we open up tonight. But before we get there, let me just ask you, how is your joy? Like, how is your joy right now? Like, walking in this building, if I were to shoot you straight, and we're not doing this whole, like, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. But if we were to actually know each other, and I said, how is your joy right now? What would you say? Now, I think there's some people in the room that you'd be like, man, my joy is great. It's summer. I have no more homework. Uh, I'm, I'm chilling. I went to the beach today, you know. I've been hanging out with my friends more. Maybe you're in love. I don't know. Like, joy comes easy to you, right? Uh, some of you are like, you know what? A lot of laughs. No one's finding love stuck in the friend zone. Yeah. Been there before. Been there before. Hey, we'll get to you. All right. Just hold up. Uh, but for some of you, when I ask, how's your joy? You're kind of like, eh, you know, like I've been better, but I've been worse, you know? Yeah, school's over, but summer's kind of lonely. Maybe I'm in a new place or like my closest friends are overseas this summer or, you know, you're kind of in the in-between. You're like, man, my joy isn't great, but it's not terrible. And others of you in this room are just like, don't talk to me about my joy, right? Um, that was me this morning. I walked into my kid's bedroom. Uh, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-month-old. Three-year-old and two-year-old share a room. I walk in their room. My two-year-old's diaper's off. Not a good start. And he's, the first thing he says to me is not like, hi, daddy. He says, there's corn in my poop. And I'm like, this is going to be real interesting. So uh, clean the poop off him and a little bit off the floor. And then I talk to my three-year-old and he says, is there poop up my back? And I'm like, Lord, this is a day. Um, good news, there was not poop up his back today. So, but I started my day and I'm like, this is not a joyful experience for me. And though we can laugh at that, the reality is some of us walk in this room tonight and are really struggling with joy. And it's not because of small, insignificant things like a poop story, you know? It's like, no, we've had real trouble happen in our life. You know, we feel incredibly isolated. We feel maybe betrayed or backstabbed. We, we've been dealing with sickness or loss, whether that's like personally or someone in your family, and you're walking in here tonight, and you're just like, joy is probably the last thing I would use to describe my life. And I just want you to know, this summer, like, we are committed to fighting for your joy. But it's not going to be easy, because the reality is, even if you're not in that stage or season where you're like, oh, joy is hard, the reality is, you've either been in that season before or you're going to be heading into that season. Like, we live in a world where it's really easy to be discouraged. Just hop on a news website, go to KCRG, read the headlines. It's easy to be discouraged. There's broken relationships, there's divorce, there's illness, there's oppression happening in our society across our world, there's homelessness, joblessness, there's disease and death. And if we just Look around, it's not hard to be discouraged. But we all want joy, right? Like, all of us want joy. Even in the midst of the worst moments of our life, we long for an indestructible joy. We just cannot wait to get back to a state or a season where we are filled with joy. But 
though we long for an indestructible joy, if you're anything like me, that's actually not super characteristic of your life. Like, we're far more marked by complaining, grumbling, irritation, maybe even bitterness. And that frustrates us, right? Uh, we know we should be a rejoicing people, especially if you call yourself a Christian in this room tonight, like, Christianity is a faith that's marked by joy. And we're like, man, I want to be a rejoicing person. But it's hard, especially when things aren't going your way. So what we're going to talk about tonight and really throughout the, the course of the whole summer is how can we be a rejoicing people? How can we be a people that are so full of joy regardless of our circumstances? So if you have a physical Bible, here's what I want you to do. Open up to the book of Philippians. Uh, and if you don't have a physical Bible with you tonight, come back next week and bring one with you. Like, we believe that this is God's word to us. It is a great privilege that we have access to the Bible in our own language. People on the other side of the world are literally dying to get their hands on one of these, and we have one. And so, if you have a physical Bible, please bring one. If you need help getting a physical Bible, please talk to us. We'd love to help put a Bible in your hands. So, Philippians chapter 1, it's the 11th book of the New Testament. Uh, use your table of contents if needed. If you hit the book of Corinthians, keep going. If you've hit the, the Timothys, the Thessalonians, you've gone too far. Flip backwards. So before we dig in, we're just going to cover 11 verses tonight. It should only take us about two hours. It's not true. Um, we're going to look at 11 verses tonight. I want to give you just a brief flyover of this letter. Like, who wrote it? Who is he writing to? What's the circumstances around uh, this letter being written? So it was written by a guy named Paul. Uh, Paul maybe you know this, maybe you don't, used to be a Christian killer. Like, if you read the early pages of Acts, Paul is a guy who is literally putting Christians to death. He hated Christians, but he has an encounter with the God of the universe on the road to Damascus and becomes a Christian himself. And from there becomes a missionary, a church planter. He actually ends up writing almost two-thirds of our New Testament today. So that's who's writing. You get a little bit of an understanding of his background. He's writing to this church in a city called Philippi. And we're first introduced to the church in Philippi in the book of Acts, chapter 16. We're not going to read it tonight, but would encourage you to, to go back and look at it at some point this week. Paul receives a vision to go to Macedonia, and so he gets on the road to go towards Rome, and he comes through this city known as Philippi. And the first thing that he, he does is, you know, it's the day of Sabbath. He wants to go find somewhere to worship. There's no synagogue in the city. So he goes down by a river and finds a group of women praying together. And there he meets a woman by the name of Lydia. Now, Lydia was very intellectual. She was very wealthy. She was a dealer of purple cloth, which is like prestigious. And she's wrestling with who is Jesus Paul preaches the gospel to her. She repents and believes. And then not only her, she goes back. Her whole family comes to know Jesus. So that's kind of the start. Uh, you know, Paul keeps going. And the next person he interacts with is a, a slave girl who is actually demon-possessed. And she follows him around the entire city. And Paul, in a moment, kind of like turns and rebukes the demon in her to come out. And she becomes a Christian. And then... Paul's thrown in jail uh, with one of his homies named Silas. That's who my most recent son is named after, Silas. Um, and they're in jail, and what are they doing? They're singing praises to God. Like, these men are literally being tortured in jail, and they're singing to God. 
and the ground begins to shake, the shackles come off, and they are set free. And the guy overseeing the jail is terrified. Like, he actually, the text says in Acts 16, that he is prepared to kill himself. Because the reality is, if jailers get out under his watch, he gets the death penalty anyways. So he is terrified, but interesting happen. Interesting thing happens. Paul and Silas don't run away. They stay put. They stay there, and the jailer interacts with them, and, and Paul and Silas get to preach the gospel to him. And then he repents and believes. And he goes back to his family and his entire family repents and believes. So you begin to see this amazing movement of God happening in Philippi. You have a rich woman and her family, a poor slave girl, and then a middle-class jailer in his family. And that's the church of Philippi. It's amazing. Like, this small beginnings. But Philippi was an influential city. It was right along a major trade highway. And people would frequently travel through Philippi on the way to Rome. Uh, interesting thing about Philippi, Rome would oftentimes send retired soldiers to live there. Uh, and the reason was because they wanted to keep Philippi under Roman rule. So Philippi was known for patriotic nationalism. Uh, they were very involved in politics. And you might imagine that when someone comes to the city and begins to proclaim that Jesus is the king of the world, not the emperor, uh, a little turmoil would begin to happen. And so that happened with Paul and Silas being thrown in jail. And it's happening to the Philippian church. You know, following Jesus and proclaiming him as king is not easy there. They're a persecuted church. They're struggling. And Paul is writing a letter to this church really as a missionary support letter. So he's writing from prison himself in the city of Rome. He is in Rome, imprisoned currently for preaching the gospel. And the church of Philippi is sending Paul like a letter and money. They're supporting him as a missionary and they're caring about his needs. And so he writes back to them, uh, sends the letter back with a guy named Epaphroditus, great name, sends a letter back to the Philippians to give them an update on how he's doing and really just thank them. So this, this letter is so full of joy. That's why the sermon series is called Summer of Joy. The words joy or rejoice happen 16 times in this book. It's not a long book. 16 times joy and rejoice are used. And it's the only letter that Paul writes in the entire New Testament that is not correcting bad teaching or rebuking bad behavior. So that's not to say we won't be confronted by the text this summer, right? There's a lot of convicting stuff in here, but... Paul is writing this to encourage us. And so even as we work through the summer, don't expect to always just be like patted on the back and be told like, you're great just the way you are. But know that the, the tone of this letter is to encourage you. It's actually to like give you a warm embrace, like a nice hug that says, it doesn't have to be this way. Right? Like God has something greater for you. And so... We want, we want joy. Uh, the Philippian church wants joy. And Paul is writing, he's opening up this letter, and he's going to let us know, like, how can we have joy when we're persecuted, when we're struggling? Maybe you're just in a difficult season of life. How can you have joy? I'm going to read the first 11 verses for us, and I'm, I'm going to point out a few things for us to see tonight. So uh, the Word of God says, starting in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with what? Joy. You missed it. You can, you can fill in the blank next time. Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is amazing. And after this initial like two-verse classic greeting from Paul, which we're not going to skip over, we're going to look at it, he says four important words. I thank my God. I thank my God. And before we even really dig in, I want you to know that thankfulness leads to joy. Thankfulness leads to joy. Like, Paul is choosing in his imprisonment to thank God. Thankfulness leads to joy, but grumbling leads to misery. It's just true. And, I mean, a story that comes to mind for me, derecho, August 2020. How many of you guys were in Cedar Rapids for that? Dude, wild encounter. Um, my family was without electricity and with that air conditioning for like nine days. And I think in that moment, there was this opportunity to say, okay, am I going to grumble or am I going to be thankful? You know, there's plenty to grumble about. I sweat if it's over 70 degrees. It's painful. Uh, I hate being hot. I could have complained about the beads of sweat rolling down my head. I could have complained about our new Buick Enclave getting damaged in the storm. There's so much that I could have been like, man, I'm just going to complain and I'm going to be miserable. But honestly, by the grace of God, just getting to stop and be like, isn't it hilarious that we were on top of Mount Mercy's hill <laughs> when this derecho rolled through and I was so arrogant, like, it's a thunderstorm. No! Like, laughing about that, I'm eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Life is good. We laugh about that. I thank God that my family was safe. I mean, my child was like in a car on the highway at the time of the storm rolling through. It's like, thank you, God, that my family is safe. And in many ways, I'm like, thank God that we don't have to make supper tonight. We can order Papa John's and eat it on the porch, you know? It's the small things, but it's like, no, I'm going to choose to give thanks. And as we just look at this text tonight, there is so much to be thankful for that just is so far outside of your circumstances that is meant to prompt or promote or lead to joy. And so I just want to point out three things that we can thank God for uh, to promote our joy. All right, so the first is this. We can thank God for the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. And there's several words. If you have a physical Bible, I just want you to like look at the text with me, okay? Six different times in these 11 verses, these two words are found together. 
Christ and Jesus. Christ Jesus. Now, we use these words frequently around the church. The question is, do you know what they mean? Like, is Christ just Jesus' last name? Or does it mean something more? Because this is important. If it's repeated six times in this text, we should probably be asking, what does that mean? Even in the church, what does Christ Jesus mean? Let me tell you. Christ means anointed one. Which from the beginning of time, with sin entering the world, God has promised a redeemer, you know, a a promised seed who would be anointed, who would rescue his people. And then as we get to the New Testament, we see Mary is, you know, impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and she is told that she will give birth to a son, and his name is going to be Jesus. Now, you've probably heard that name plenty of times before. Here's what the name Jesus means. Yahweh is salvation. Or you could say it this way, God saves. And so, as we just look at this text, it's like the first thing that we need to really thank God for is Jesus Christ. Like the person and work of God putting on flesh in human form, right? Coming and living and dying in our place and rising from the dead that we can have a restored relationship with him. Now, a few other words that I want you to see here. The word grace. It's repeated in our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are all partakers with me of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. There's nothing you can do to earn grace. It is a gift. Another word I want you to see. Gospel. You are partners in the gospel. You are defending and confirming the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Good news, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God saves. And here's what's sweet. As Paul is writing to this church, he's saying, I am writing to you. I am so stirred with my affection that I am saying my affection is that of Jesus Christ, which means here's what's true, Salt Company. God does not just tolerate you. He does not just put up with you. You are not the troubled child that he puts up with and then turns away. He has affection for you. He longs for you. He loves you so much that even when you are running away from him, he is chasing you down. That is the good news of the gospel. You could flip a few pages back. We're going to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. just want to read this over you. This is the gospel. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's what's true. All of us, no matter what family you've been born into, what city you're from, we are all born sinners. We are all, by our very nature, enemies of God. And these initial verses say, here's what's true. The ways of the world, the ways of culture, are contrary to God. That's number one. Number two There is a spiritual enemy. We call him the devil. He is real, and he is here to lie and deceive you and destroy you. He is against you. And here's what's true. Number three, you want to follow him. The ways of the flesh. So it's like 
Culture is pulling us. The devil is deceiving us. And we want it. We're running towards hell. But, look at, look at verse 4. This is important. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, because of his affections for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is good news. Like, you, not only can you not save yourself, you don't have to save yourself. This is not up to you working hard to get to God. It is about the reality that God put on flesh and came to you. He lived the life you couldn't and already died in your place. The question is, will you respond? Will you believe and trust in him? And from there, the good news in our text, Philippians, if you look at verse 6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Like, the grace of Jesus doesn't only save you, but it sustains you. It carries you through. Meaning, Jesus chose you, he saved you, and he's not just going to do away with you, right? Like, Jesus frequently, all he does is he works with unfinished people. <laughs> That's you and me. We're unfinished projects, but here's what's also true. Jesus himself does not struggle with unfinished work. He deals with unfinished people, but he doesn't struggle with unfinished work. I do, right? My lawnmower still has three wheels on it in our garage right now. It's been that way for a month. And I don't know when I'm going to get to it. I have its replacement part ordered. Don't know when I'll fix it. That's not how God treats you. He is always near to you, always looking to, to continue to work on you and mold you and shape you, and he's doing that from a place of love. And so I have to tell you, like, joy in Jesus, this is the only way you're going to get indestructible joy. Like, there's plenty of other things we can thank God for that can promote joy, but if you don't have the gospel, your joy will be destructible. Like, the reason that Paul and Silas in Acts 16 can sing praises to God when they're imprisoned and being tortured is because they serve a God who knows what it's like to suffer. Like, even in the midst of your deepest, darkest, heaviest, weightiest, most sinful moments, Jesus is there. He is near. That's how you get indestructible joy. And the good news is you're not just saved from something. You're not just like saved from your sin to then just be like, okay, I guess I got out of jail free. You're saved to something. You're saved to belong to something greater, which is the second thing that you can be grateful for, thank God for, as partners in the gospel. You can thank God for partners in the gospel. We see in verse 5, Paul tells the Philippian church, he is thanking God and making prayer with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. Like, he is thanking God for a church that he has been connected to, that he started, that is providing for him financially, that is caring for his needs, and also 
that though they're separated with him being in Rome, they're also defending and promoting the gospel. Like Paul recognizes, I am not in this alone. Christianity is not a private faith. There is no way that you can be a Christian and live your faith privately. I mean, we live in a day and age where I hear people always say, you know, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm so happy for you. That is a good thing. Like, I want to celebrate that. Yes, let's have a personal relationship with Jesus. Like, the grace of God is not just for those people over there, but it is for me. And you cannot follow Jesus alone. There is no such thing as an obedient Christian who follows Jesus alone. No such thing. Because as you read your New Testament, you'll understand that there are just shy of 60 different commands to live out a one another of scripture. Pray for one another, confess to one another, bear one another's burdens. You cannot do that alone. And the question is, why would you do it alone? Honestly. I mean, some of you in this room are like, I don't know, because people are freaking annoying. I'm like, yeah, guess what? You're an annoying person too, right? Like, we're all annoying. We're all broken. We all have sin in our lives. But the good news is, you don't have to do this thing alone. The Christian faith is marked by endurance and long suffering. Like, this is not a sprint, it is a marathon. Maybe you've heard this quote before if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. I'm just telling you, speed is not a component of the Christian faith, but distance is. And so if you want to last in the Christian faith, you can't follow Jesus alone. And the good news is you don't have to. You can belong to community. Not just here on a Thursday night, not just on a connection group on a Monday or Tuesday. You can belong to a local church, one that is filled with people that can care for you people that can support you, people that can be strong where you're weak, people that can help you when you're in need, people that can encourage you when you're downcast or in despair, people that can speak truth to you when you're listening to lies, whether it's lies from out there or lies within yourself, people that can point out blind spots in you. I mean, by nature, a blind spot is you can't see it. <laughs> you need other people to see where you can't see. And just like Paul with the Philippians, people that can pray for you, people that can seek God on your behalf when something is going on in your life that you can knock on their door, pick up the phone, shoot them a text, whatever, and say, will you please pray for me? What a gift. And that's the last thing that we can just thank God for is the ability to pray for his transforming work. But I want to just start with those first few words, that we can thank God for the ability to pray. Have you ever thought about how crazy that is? This struck me as I was just preparing the sermon. Okay, the God of the universe, who spoke everything into existence, who is perfect, holy, blameless, on the throne, sovereign and in control, nothing happens that's beyond his reach, is like, yeah, Jordan, I want to hear from you. What? Like, me? Us? Like, honestly, I am just a jacked up ordinary dude in Cedar Rapids. And yet the God of the universe is like, Jordan, I want to hear from you. What a gift to get to pray. A gift that I frequently neglect. 
and I'm sure many of you in this room are with me, that we just don't recognize praying as a gift. We can talk to God. That's amazing. I just looked this up today, okay? How many of you guys know who Maddie Poppy is? Heard of her before? She won American Idol like five years ago, so she's already old news, but um, she's a small-town Iowa gal, semi-famous. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I could get Maddie Poppy to pick up my call. No chance, all right? You either. And she's only semi-famous. Here's what's true. If you want to get a hold of Maddie Poppy, you got to go through her booking agent. And so I found her booking agent. Fun fact. You might think, wow, he has a lot of time on his hands. Um, here's what you need to do. Uh, if you want Maddie Poppy, who won American Idol five years ago, to come speak at your, at your private event, you need to book in advance, and you need at least thirty to $50,000. Whoa! I'm like... I'm just balling on a ministry budget, yo. That's like, I can't do that in the next three years, probably, you know? So I don't have enough money. I'm definitely not popular enough. I mean, I wasn't even the coolest kid in my high school. My hometown has 1,800 people. Definitely not popular enough. And I don't have a big enough crowd. Like, let's be real. I didn't even have 200 people at my wedding, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not popular enough. I don't have enough money. I can't draw a big enough crowd. And that's just like, she's not even that famous. Most of you in this room are like, I didn't even raise my hand. Who is she? She would never pick up your call, but here's who will, the God of the universe. He wants to hear from you. And you get to talk to him, and it's free. You don't have to pay 30K. That's awesome. Praise God for that. But did you notice here what Paul is praying for? I think that's, that's also challenging. When I look at my prayer life, how frequently I'm praying for, like, God, keep us healthy, keep us safe, you know, provide for us in these ways. Um, you know, he could have been praying for the Philippian church and said, God, help their church grow, help it explode, help the gospel, like, go crazy in Philippi. Here's what he prays for. Verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He prays for their love. Like, would your love abound? And he's praying for true love, like love that is met with wisdom and discernment, that he's saying, I want you to not just do what like other people say is loving, but what is truly loving. And we have a problem with this in our world today. You know, a narrative that tells you, hey, if you just affirm people, that is loving. And I'm here to squash that, all right? Affirming people in their bad choices is not loving. You can go about that in a loving way, but to just affirm destructive behavior in their life is the exact opposite of love. My father passed away in 2016, but part of his story is that he was a recovered alcoholic. Ended up serving as a drug and alcohol counselor in the, in the prison system in the state of Iowa, but here's what would have not been loving to do to my dad to bring home a 30-pack of beer and put it in front of him and say, dude, just do it. And then if he caves, you know, turns back to an old habit, to just keep bringing him home booze and being like, dude, go destroy your life. Go destroy your family. Is that loving? No, absolutely not. And so when we see fellow Christians living in sin and we understand sin leads to death, like, Sin is out to destroy our lives. When we rebel against God's command, it is not for our flourishing. The loving thing to do is to talk to somebody about it. 
To, to genuinely love them is to say something about their sin. Now, I just want to talk through the ditches really quick, all right? There's two ditches we tend to fall in, like most things in life. One is grace without truth. Grace without truth, which looks at somebody in their sin and just says, it's okay, you're loved. And here's what you're doing. Grace without truth is enablement. You're enabling bad behavior, and you are patting them on the back as they walk down the path to destruction. That is not love. But the other side is honestly just as damaging. Truth without grace is condemnation. To just look at somebody's life and condemn them, that is not the way of Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, how do we genuinely love somebody? Truth with grace. Or grace with truth. Like, every time that Jesus, like, heals somebody or, like, moves towards them, here's what he frequently does. He heals them, and here's what he says. Your faith has made you well. Go and sin no more. So it's both this like, hey, I want to teach forgiveness and I want to call you towards obedience. Your faith has made you well. Here is the truth of the gospel. And how can I help you no longer participate in this destructive pattern in your life? That is love. That is love. And the result of of this love, as you see in verse 11, is that, that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, Right? That your life would be so marked by the way of Jesus that you would be described as somebody that is filled with righteousness. Like when people look at you, they're like, wow, he looks, she looks a lot like Jesus. But did you notice how that righteousness comes? This is amazing. Filled with the fruit of righteousness in verse 11 that comes through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. This righteousness is actually something that you can't work harder for. You can't muster up the strength to become more righteous. And that is great news, right? This ability to pray for God's transforming work in us, that is like, hey, let's just thank God that us becoming more righteous is not up to our hard work. And it's not just up to us like praying to God for him to give us things. We can pray to God and say, God, don't just do this for me, but do this in me. Do this in me. Like, would you give me a heart to love people more? Would you help me turn from my sin? Would you help me want to obey you? And the reality is, only God has the ability to change a human heart. You don't, not even your own. But he can and he will. What a gift that we can pray to God and say, God, not only have you saved me, you're the one that's shaping me. You're the one that's transforming me. That is amazing. And so, honestly, tonight, as we close out, here's what you can, here's just a way to muster up joy as you go about your life this week. Thank God for the promise of salvation, partners in the gospel, and the ability to pray for his transforming work, right? Thank God. Salvation, great news. We have partners in the gospel. We're not left to do this alone. And not only do we have great community around us, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. That Jesus would tell his followers, I am not leaving you alone. You are not as orphans. I am sending you a helper, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God within you that is actually doing the transforming work. That is amazing news. And so how do we begin to apply this? Honestly, 
you're all pretty intelligent, but I want to give you three ways that we can respond. Number one is believe the promise. Like, believe the promise that salvation is for you. Like, Jesus did not just come and live a perfect life and die a gruesome death for those people out there or for your friend who has behaved better than you. He died for you, for you personally. If you would say, Jesus, I trust that you died in my place and that you rose from the grave to make me a new creation, you are a new creation. Believe in the promise. And secondly, belong to community. Like, hopefully you leave tonight and understand, I cannot follow Jesus alone in any way, shape, or form, especially over the course of summer. Summer is a hard time to follow Jesus. There's a lot going on around you. And you're, probably many of you are missing like your closest friends. Don't miss the next nine weeks of an opportunity to dive into new community and partner with people in gospel faith right, through connection groups. We offer them Monday nights and Tuesday nights. And lastly, begin to pray. Um, begin to pray. And with that, begin to pray differently. Like, number one, if we're not praying, we have to start there. Like, just build it into your schedule, right? What does five minutes at the beginning of the day look like for you just to say, wow, God, I am amazed that I get to talk to you. What a gift. But I say begin to pray differently because if you're anything like me, you're, you're really quick to go to God like he's a vending machine, right? And he can give something to you. But what if we would just start to pray for God to do something in us, not just for us? And to pray that for our friends too, right? I'm not against praying for God to do things for you. I think we should do that too. But how much greater that like we can pray for God to like grow our friends in love or to grow them in obedience or to like help them forgive a family member or to help them experience the peace of God in the midst of turmoil. Like, would we just start praying like that? And I think what's cool is we get, we get a glimpse into what happens if we start to live this life of joy because verse 11 ends with this, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. And here's what's true. When you see, historically, throughout the movement of the church, when you get a group of people together that are filled with joy, that love Jesus and love one another, here's what happens. More people praise Jesus. Now, that's not the goal, necessarily, right? That's a good thing. It's an overflow of joy in Jesus. That we start with saying, let's just be so full of joy, but let's also understand that this joy is not meant to just come to us, but it's meant to go through us, right? That as we experience the joy of Christ, that as we experience the joy of community and the ability to pray, that we would get to see this joy go through us. We would get to see, honestly, I would love to move out of this room into the auditorium again. I'd love to see more people in this room praising Jesus with us. That would be a gift, but here's where it has to start. Start in this room, right? With our joy. And so... That's what I want to do. I just want to close out, pray for you. Uh, we're going to get the opportunity to sing a couple more songs and respond in joy, but pray that our joy would be full and that God would use us uh, for his glory and his praise. So pray with me. Yeah, Father, you are good. You are rich in mercy. 
And God, because of the great love with which you have loved us, not because of the great love with which we've loved you, because of your love for us, we get to experience joy. Jesus, because you lived the life that we could not, you were perfect, you never disobeyed. Because of your death, because you were punished, you literally died. You took the wrath of God on your shoulders in our place, but you didn't stay dead. You rose victorious three days later. You conquered our sin. You conquered Satan. You conquered death itself. And you are now beckoning us. You are pleading for us to partner with you in the joy that you give to us. Jesus, you told your followers on the night that you were betrayed, that you have said these things, that your joy would be in us and our joy would be made full. And I pray that for this room tonight. Jesus, make their joy full in you. Surround them with great community that helps them follow you and help us not neglect the gift of prayer. To actually just be amazed that you would want to hear from us, that you would turn your ear and long to hear from your people. Help us to pray for spiritual things for ourselves and one another. And God, as we do that, would you honestly just turn this city upside down for the sake of the gospel? We want more people to give you praise and to give you glory because you deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.